When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft, that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with fiction writer Eden Lepucky, author of the novel Time's Mouth. As for why I want to linger in the past, I just feel like who doesn't? Who doesn't want to just close their eyes and go back to, you know, a certain moment of meeting someone or eating at that particular restaurant or holding your kids for the first time. I mean, I would just kill to go to college again. We'll be back with Eden Lepucky after these essential words. So this past June marked the 10th anniversary of First Draft. The first episode aired on June 10th, 2013. And if the person I am today told my younger self that I'd be nearly 450 episodes deep into this show in 10 years, I would have laughed at my future self. But alas, here we are. And how did we get here? At what I would estimate is 9,000 hours of work I've put into this podcast. That's reading, researching, interviewing, editing, arranging the guests. I am the entire staff. And I guess the answer is how did we get to 9,000 hours is a mixture of insanity and blind but ferocious dedication to sharing conversations about craft and literature. This isn't AI, folks. This is weekends where I sit and read and so many things in my life that get fully ignored for this endeavor. And I honestly consider it a gift to the world. It's a place where my passion and I hope some amount of finesse and skill marry together to offer this conversation you're about to hear directly to you in the intimate way that audio works. And if you get anything out of this episode or the hundreds that came before, or hopefully the hundreds that will come next, I am asking you in the most honest and authentic way I know how to please support this show. While I love making it and talking to authors and the entire endeavor fills me up, it does not pay the bills. And if we want to support art in this world and conversations about art and lift the curtain up and really talk about how art gets made, well, your support will help keep this show alive. It's here today because of listeners who became supporters. And that's the truth. So I'm asking you to bolster this rich dialogue, this juicy material with financial support. It's not easy to do, but sticking with this for 10 years wasn't easy to do either. And it's not going to be easy in the future. But if nothing else, it's reliable and consistent. With every episode, I lean into the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create this show, and I hope you can feel them in the content. I simply cannot take this time to create First Draft without your support. Please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member to the First Draft community. You can support the show today at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate on a monthly or annual level. As a thank you to my patrons, you receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes so you won't have to hear this again, and writing tips from my guests. Again, you can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash first draft writers. 
That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash First Draft Writers. Please stay tuned. At the end of the interview, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for your listening support. And thank you for being here with me today, right here in this moment. And on to the 400-something episode. My guest today is Eden Lepucky, author of the novella If You're Not Yet Like Me and the novels California, Woman Number 17, and Time's Mouth. She is a graduate of Oberlin College and the University of Iowa Writers Workshop, and her fiction and nonfiction have been published in Esquire, the New York Times Magazine, the Los Angeles Times, McSweeney's, and other publications. Her new novel, Time's Mouth, tells the story of Ursa, a woman who can travel through memory and revisit her past. The book opens with Ursa fleeing her hometown for the counterculture glory of 1950s California. After a short time living in San Francisco, Ursa moves into the woods outside of Santa Cruz, California, where she forms a cultish community of women and children. She raises her son Ray with the other children in the community who are often forsaken for periods of time when Ursa is time-traveling. While she's doing this, the other women are witnessing it as a type of ceremony. When Ray is older, he and his pregnant lover, Cherry, flee the commune and reinvent themselves in Los Angeles. But they can't quite escape Ursa's influence, and mysterious events force Cherry to abandon their child, and Ray is left to raise her alone. Time's Mouth is a novel that grapples with family secrets, generational trauma, and the bounds of forgiveness, set in a California where both optimism and danger loom. We began with Eden Lepucky reading a passage from the novel. This is just the first page and a half of the novel. It comes before chapter one. You've wondered about me. When a decade passes as quickly as a year, when you look up and see that life is half over, that it's almost over, that's when you wonder, how did it all pass so quickly? You try to conjure the past and yourself in it, that thing you used to feel, what you wore, how the bed felt in the dark, how you carried your body through space, the depthless mysteries the world created only for you. It's as if those versions of yourself still exist somewhere on another plane. You're sure of it, if only you had access to them. You close your eyes and you can almost touch the past. That's you grasping with tiny hands at the scruff of the family dog. Or you're doing cartwheels with your sister. Or you're getting a popsicle at the store down the block. There's your dad. Or you're talking in a low-ceilinged room you'll never see again, listening to someone whose voice you'll never hear again. Or there's a baby in your arms, and that baby is already the only person you can't stand to lose. You can almost touch what's been lost. Almost. That child isn't a child anymore. Neither are you. This moment is gone, and this one is too. It's slurped away from you. I guess I do the slurping. Not that I have a mouth, or I'm all mouth or mouth-like. I'm not time, but I hold it. Again and again, on and on, I witness how people return to the past in their minds or avoid it altogether, build an altar or dig a hole, pray or bury, try to relive or forget. I am a space that precious few have been able to inhabit for more than a moment. Those who can, those who can slip the membrane and visit those moments again, well, I want to tell you about them. Yeah, so I have so many questions from just this section, but I'm curious because your story is more of a traditional narrative, um, you know, with characters and things like this. And this is more like a an overarching, like almost like a godlike voice above it. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious about your decision to to write this and start this way. And then I have a few more questions about the content of that. Sure. Well, yeah, I guess where do I start with this? Because this was probably one of one of the many banes of my existence when I was drafting this book. Um, that section also used to come in like 20 pages into the book. Um, and before that, there were these little hints that there was a 
another kind of intelligence telling the story. Um, and I always liked that little section. And my editor was like, I think you should put it at the beginning because I think it it teaches the reader how to read the book. Um, you get the understanding that there's some omniscience going on. It's not just a close third person. There is some something else kind of guiding the story. Um, however, there used to be much more of Time's Mouth throughout the novel. There used to be money more like kind of editor editorializing passages, little asides. There used to be more interstitials throughout the book. Um, but everybody, pretty much everyone except me hated that. <laughs> everyone was like, I'm inside the story. Don't bother me. Um, so it works as a sort of opening of like, let me introduce you to what this book will be able to do and the kind of magic or otherworldliness that will happen and what, what kind of allows the movement through time and towards different people is because you have this omniscience. Um, but the omniscience, I'll give her the she, her pronoun, but she's kind of an it or a they. Um, but she you know, she, she's omniscient, but she doesn't get in the way and she definitely has a personality. Um, so that's, that's how it all began. So to have, you know, all these people accept you, not like it, how did you sort of seed that over? How did you decide, okay, I have to get rid of it. Was it really the pressure from other people or like, was there an inkling that you were like, they're probably right? I never resisted it. But I, I, for so long, I wanted to make it work that I kept trying to make it work because I love like, you know, 19, 18th century novels that do that or even Middlemarch or something where it's a pretty straightforward novel. And then all of a sudden the narrator just pops in to talk about politics or the folly of human relationships. I really like that. And I thought it's interesting how that's become old fashioned. It's so old fashioned that it's become experimental. Um, so for a long time, I wanted to make it work. And so for a while, I had drafts where it was even stronger and Time's Mouth played a stronger role. And then when that didn't work, then I started to take it off. And I find often like when you resist cutting, and I think it's useful to resist cutting if you really feel strongly about something. But often I found that I finally start to understand what the spine of the story is. And I realize I don't need something that I've held on to. And I start to cut it and remove it. It's suddenly very easy to do, and it it's so much, it's so much better, faster than I wish I had listened at the beginning. Um, but I really didn't have a single person who was like, "If you get rid of this, it'll take away from the central conceit of the book. It will take the soul away." Nobody said that to me, and so I just needed enough time to kind of understand what the role was in the book and how I could. I think I was afraid if I took it away, if I didn't have the armature of the voice, it would lose something because it is a pretty conventional novel or traditional novel after that. Like for a novel about time travel, it's a chronological story for the most part. Um, I think I was worried that if I didn't have it, every, something else would dissolve, but I took it away and these other parts kind of rose up and felt better and felt stronger. Um, but it took, I'll admit, it took many drafts and years to kind of come to that and the cutting the interstitials there was one at the beginning and then there were like going to be like two or three more and that was the very last thing I cut in the book like right before it went to copy edits we just pulled them because my editor was like I really don't think you need these they kind of tell what the book shows and I was like I like them I think they're clever I think they're interesting and then I he was like okay let's take them out of the book and you read them alone and see how they read and I read them and I thought oh these are so stupid um, but I needed to move through the whole writing of the book to see that. And so, you know, I feel like my editor, he was going to let me keep them because I was so passionate about them. And then I think he was relieved when I came to his side of the story, <laughs> came to his opinion. So in the DVD uncut version, maybe <laughs> we can see it. You'll see those other ones. I mean, what's funny is a couple of my favorite lines from a couple of the other interstitials worked its way, worked their way into this opening. Um, so I got my darlings. They're just excised from longer pieces that weren't actually that good, I realized. And I think you did keep it because you have like in, in sentence level things, you do have, you know, you just have like on page 38, just really quick, let's skip ahead. So 
it's there is this other voice coming in that is reminiscent of the beginning and it's super short things, but you have a few of those scattered throughout the book. Yeah. So I didn't want you to forget about her because she does influence something later in the book. So I couldn't have totally forgotten about her. And I, if you, if it wasn't part of the telling, it would be like, well, why do you need the opening at all? Um, And I love kind of the, the feeling of omniscience without the um, interruption of it. That was pleasing to me. And it was useful. I had never had that voice before in a novel. And it really kind of let me have a kind of power or authority that I don't kind of find naturally. So to be able for to be able to have a voice who could occasionally tell you how a character would feel or tell you that the character didn't understand something that the narrator did or to manipulate time in that way to skip ahead or let me start with this. That was actually really fun. And I got to step into a voice that I don't, I didn't, hadn't ever tried before. So you got a swagger in your book. Yes, exactly. A little sass. (laughs) So, so much of this book is about, it's about mothers and children and trauma and the way that we deal with trauma and secrets and loss and sort of generational mistakes that get passed down. And I'm curious about your interest in particular with mothers and children and time. Yeah, time. Time is so cruel to parents, I think. Um, You know, where if you, for most parents and for most children, the obsolescence is built into the into the job. So you you have this child who's utterly helpless when they're first born. And if you if everything goes as planned, they eventually grow up to leave you and need you less. And they will think of you less and less, even if that's a central relationship that will affect them for the rest of their lives. And I think parents think of their children far more than the kids are thinking of their parents. Um as it should be. That's the natural order of things. You know, my mom worries about me and I'm not I'm not always thinking about her. And that's, that's a very special thing that I have. That's a gift that I have, that I have a mother who does that for me. Um, But as my kids get older, um, I have three children. Currently they're 12, about to be four and seven. And so, you know, as they get older, I think more and more about the passage of time and that, you know, you only get 18 years around there with your kid. And then, you know, you're still in each other's lives and it's still such a special relationship, but but it's not that daily interaction and intensity that it once was. And that's both wonderful and also just so horrifying to think about <laughs> as a mom thinking about my kids leaving someday. So that's obviously been on my mind. Um, and because I'm a parent and I'm mothering every day, it's my other occupation besides writing. I don't think I could really write about anything else. It kind of is creeping into all my work ever since i was pregnant. It's been my subject. Didn't you write a piece about your mom before she had kids? Yes. Not well, I, I, it's a long story, but I have a book. I edited a book called mothers before stories and portraits of our mothers as we never saw them. It came out in a a hard time for books, April of 2020. Um, And it actually, I sold it based on an Instagram that I created. This is a roundabout way to get a book deal, but I created an Instagram to publicize my second novel, Woman Number 17, who has a character who's interested in her mother before she became a mother. So I started to gather pictures of women's mothers before they were mothers and have little captions about them. And I sold a collection of, you know, photos with short, I was calling them micro essays from any, everyone, Dana Spiata had a had an essay, Jennifer Egan, Dan Z. Senna, all these wonderful writers and some quote unquote civilians. Um, kind of interrogating these images of our mothers before we could know them and what it means to, you know, how does, a how do you think about your mother now versus how they were before you came along? It's, there's like, and it, there's an element of mystery there. You can never know that person. And yet you can strive to know the person who your mother is beyond their mothering capabilities. Um, so I, I think most people are interested in their parents before they became parents. And those photographs are always so intriguing and funny and interesting. And my mom's pictures are incredible. And even my daughter is pretty interested in photos of me from my youth and has a lot of questions about them. And I'll tell her stories about college and stuff that she loves. Um, So that's a, you know, it's such an, it's such a central relationship, my relationship to my parents, to my mother, 
how my kids think of me as a mother and when I'm not mothering, all that stuff is all kind of always swirling in my mind. And so much of what you're talking about seems to be, you know, the intrigue with women you love and women who, by most accounts, or maybe all accounts, were good mothers. And in your book, the central character is really not a very good mother. She comes from a space of trauma. Her name is Ursa, and she originally had a different name when she lived on the East Coast, but she moves to California, meets a friend, lives in San Francisco, and then her friend has a home in Ben Lomond, which is in the Redwoods, kind of near Santa Cruz. And when she's very young, about to leave home, she learns that she can sort of do this sort of time travel where she can basically enter the past and watch it like a film, like watch herself like a film and kind of be there again, like experience time again. Like in a way, it's kind of like a gluttony because she can relive these things again and again. And when she goes to Ben Lomond, she ends up creating this cult basically to where other mothers and women come, some with their kids. And she's kind of the leader that goes into this trance-like state when she's transporting and going back in time. And so I'm just really curious about the creation of this character and what was so fascinating to you about lingering in this time and being lustful for time. Oh, great questions. First of all, I want to say my mother wants everyone to know that she's a great mom. She didn't abandon me. (laughs) And I seem to have a lot of bad mothers in my fiction. And I don't know what that means because I was raised by beautiful people who tried their best. Um, but maybe they let me, they let me feel so free that I can imagine the alternative. Um, but yeah, Ursa is my villain. And I keep, you know, I keep saying that because I never had a straightforward villain. Um, I never had a, a classic antagonist in my books and I wanted to try that. Um, at the same time, I wanted to give her humanity. Um, I wanted you to kind of understand why she is damaged and how she continues to inflict damage on other people and to identify with her, even as you might be like repelled by her. Um, And I don't, she came later in the, in the, you know, when you first start a book and you come up with an idea, she was far from my mind. I started with the idea of a magical baby and from there spun the story. And I can't really remember how I fused the two, but I had this idea of writing about a magical baby and I'd always wanted to write about someone who could go back in time to their own past. I won't say always. I wanted to, since I had my first child and the writer, Ben Fountain, he had told me, you know, I wouldn't want to raise my kids all over again. I think at the time his kids were like 19 or in their early twenties. He said, I don't want to do that again, but if I could just have like a few minutes with my young, my son sitting on the couch with him when he's four and just feel that I would. And at the time it didn't really hit me, but I always wanted to go back to certain moments of my past. I think most people have felt the pain of not being able to go home again and not been able to go back to a moment in their lives. Um, so Ben said that to me and it kind of just stuck in my mind And then when I had this idea of the magical baby, which was inspired by my second child, because she had these amazing blue eyes and would like peer at you with this discerning gaze, somehow my imagination connected the dots. And I was like, magical baby, time travel, obviously. Um, Ursa didn't come in until much later. She, I always knew that she was Ray's mother. And it wasn't until later that I dove into her backstory and dramatized how she came to be um, and who she was. But dramatizing some of her upbringing and having her linger in those moments made her story kind of leap off the page. And suddenly she was real in a way as before she was just the antagonist. And then when I let her start the story, she suddenly took on this full humanity. As for why I want to linger in the past, I just feel like who doesn't, who doesn't want to just close their eyes and go back to, you know, a certain moment of meeting someone or eating at that particular restaurant or holding your kids for the first time. I mean, I would just kill to go to college again. (laughs) I just want to be that age again and feel all those intense feelings again. So I feel like I'm not alone in that feeling. I mean, I feel like as we age and the only word I can think of is like this nostalgia for the past, but then 
it's interesting to consider, and that's really what your book does, what happens when you go there? Ursa has a son named Ray, and she raises him in this cult environment in Ben Lomond. And basically none of the kids there knew what was going on. They would go to the the East Wing and a full moon. The women would go and they would lock the kids in this room, like to be on their own. So there was abuse and neglect going on. And none of the other women could even do this sort of time travel. They they could only watch and kind of live off the glow of what Ursa experienced. But yet I was thinking so much from a psychological lens, like Ursa was abused by her father and that this was such a reaction to trauma. In one way, I read it as something that she was actually doing. And in another way, I was reading it as like this psychological condition. Let's see, where do we go? This is such a good reading of the book. Um, You know, Ursa, like when you said it's nostalgia, it's true. That's what it is. Like when we're experiencing that desire to go back to our past, it's nostalgia, but that's not enough for a book, right? Like nostalgia is cool, but there's no real story there. So I had to think about, well, how could it have these consequences? And one of the ways it has consequences is I wanted people who couldn't do it to experience a kind of euphoria, which would work as a drug, which would them which would then make them make bad choices. So that's where you get the mamas wanting to surround Ursa in what's called the Eastern wing. And they don't really care where their kids are because they need to feel this feeling. And that was really interesting to me. And I also wanted there to be negative things happening. So they feel this euphoria, but then they feel sick afterwards in the way you might feel if you're having withdrawal from a really intense drug. Um, And I, that was exciting to me because it then was, Affect, it wasn't just Ursa going back and having these feelings of intense nostalgia, but we were having real world consequences within the universe of the story. Um, and then why she does it, I mean, Ursa had always been abused. Just the moment I conceived of her and the moment I started writing about her, there was like this dark spot on her childhood that I knew something bad had happened, but this makes me feel like I know she's fake. Like I recognize that she's fake, but when I'm creating a character, I, they, they have to feel like totally like these real people that I somehow know, like ghosts that are talking to me, but she, she, I didn't want it in the book. And so I don't really know any of that story, except that she has so thoroughly repressed it. Um, But somebody who's so thoroughly repressed the past also is quite good at manipulating the past. So I thought that would be really interesting of her power coming from this wound that she has. Um, And she's not able to mother understand the damage she's doing because she was not cared for herself as a child. Her mother did not protect her from her father that, you know, from the beginning of the book, from like the first 10 pages. Um, And so she harbors this hatred towards her mother and she never feels safe around a lot of people. So because of that, I don't think that she's actually able to see that the other, the kids that she's raising are not feeling safe. And she doesn't, and that's not to say that people who have terrible things happen to them as children can't then become great parents. I just think Ursa never sought to overcome what happened to her by blotting it out. It just caused all kinds of more problems as, you know, can happen with bad things. I think there's so much there about trauma and how we can choose because she gets more and more addicted to going to the past and not living in her present, that it was a way to both visit this beautiful time and be with her son when he's young, but also to make not much of your present, that you're, you're, you're not allowed, allowing yourself to make new memories, to have a new rich life. And I'm wondering if you think there's, you know, the addiction of that, of, of wanting to go back, because especially as we get older, it's so maybe much more present in our, in our thoughts. I definitely wanted it to feel like a cautionary tale. Like you think you want to be able to go in the past, but this is how it goes badly. And she, you know, she, it's, it's why she's not a good mother is because she has this gift and she abuses it. And it's, you know, she's not a good friend because of the same reason. And she, I think there's a line where it's like, if she, one of the time travelers in the book 
thinks like, if I don't stop this, I won't have any memory to go back to in the future because all I'm ever doing is time traveling. Um, so I'm always like, okay, maybe I don't want to go into the past because that's a power that can become a burden. Um, and I think also like if I could go back and hold my kids when they were babies, it wouldn't be as precious as it is because I can't do it. It's the same, you know, the same thing where like, if you didn't die, life would not be that great. Like my kids are all, my kid, my youngest is have, just is about to have his birthday and my daughter said, why can't we have birthday every day? And it's the same thing. Well, if your birthday was every day, it wouldn't be what it is. It wouldn't be so exciting. It would just be like any other day. So I try to remember that. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As the novel progresses, Ray, her son, ends up leaving the cult with another woman who's there named Cherry. And Ray, who is Ursa's son, gets the privilege that many of the kids don't get of getting an education and going to college. So he's exposed to the external world because they were very insular there. They were very protective of their community, like to the point where they had guns if people came onto the land. And Ray absconds away in the middle of the night with Cherry, this other woman that is there. She's a woman now. And they have fallen in love and they leave and go to L.A. and they have a child together. And it turns out their child, Opal, has some of these talents as well of visiting Mm -hmm. time. I'm curious about how you alighted on all that because you were saying like it started off with this magical baby and then Ursa came around. So curious about your journey finding the structure of this book and the narrative thread what a journey it was let me tell you Mitzi. um like this the for the for years the first line of this of the novel was the baby had a clean aura which i just i still think is a great line for a novel not this one but some other novel it started in cherry's perspective with her baby who was having episodes and you were immediately and episodes were this, her baby, you know, they've, they've escaped from this cult and this baby suddenly freezing up and everything feeling really bad and something is happening to the baby and you don't know what it is. And the novel eked out some of their past of where they had come from. And a lot, a few readers said, I am having a hard time getting a hold on Cherry. And my husband was like, he liked the book much better when it moved away from Cherry to Ray and whatever came beyond that. And he said, I just feel so oppressed by Cherry's perspective and I'm having a really hard time. And of course, I'm. I'm this is a theme of just me not listening to feedback. Some people liked it, but I came upon the new structure after I sold the book my editor, Dan, who had a really just sort of amazing editorial vision for the book. And he said, I think you should tell the story chronologically, start with Ursa and show us the creation of this place so that when we see Ray and Sherry with the baby, we know where they've come from and we know why it's so hard for them to adjust. And we understand Sherry's fear. We understand this bizarro cult she's come from. Um, And you know, these were all kind of creative writing 101 things that I tell my students, which is dramatize, you know, shifts in the story um, as a way to show character. And suspense is created by supplying information, not withholding it. So in earlier drafts, you didn't understand what the time travel was. That was that became a reveal because Cherry and Ray don't know about it. In this version, you know about it from the very beginning. So you understand that the time travel is central to the book. You understand the secret that Ursa is keeping and that secret has so much more power once you understand it. Um, And it really allowed me to just develop the characters in a way that the characters were not developed before. A lot of it was told because so much time was covered. A lot of it was told in kind of 
a kind of summary that I love that's intricate years passing summary, which I love to read in a novel. And it has a place in this book, but it wasn't at the beginning. It shouldn't have been, it shouldn't have been at the very beginning of the book. Um, so now the baby, I think she comes in on page like 90 or a hundred. And at first she was on page one, the baby. So I, it took me a while to come to it, but sometimes, you know, revision can be about complicating things and, you know, mucking up a structure to be unexpected. And sometimes I think simplifying the structure so that these complicated ideas can be shown is what's needed. And that was what was needed for this book. That's so interesting because I think most people would assume when you sell a book, you're not going to wholesale change it like that. You know, I, <laughs> I people say edit, editors don't edit, but I've been edited three times now. I've always had, you know, editors who are super passionate and interested in this case was the most extreme where dance Matenka at counterpoint bought the book, but he didn't, before he bought it, we had a phone call about his ideas. And he was like, I don't know if you know if you like this idea, but here it is. And at that point I felt like this book had so many special parts to it, but wasn't totally working. And I couldn't figure out why. And I, at that point was like, Dan is kind of a legend in the business and I really trusted him and I loved his idea. And I was like, let's give it a shot. Um, but yeah, we kind of took this book down to its studs a little bit. Um, some of it is exactly how it always was. And some of it is totally new material that just was there maybe in a little bit of summary. And then I just blew it open and wrote 75 pages. Um, and the, the ending is exactly how it always was, but we were sort of, I was moving to get to that ending. Um, but yeah, I feel, and I don't know, maybe I'm not supposed to talk about how, you know, central my editor was. I feel like that's maybe not allowed. You're supposed to just pretend like this book arrived fully formed from the, from the writer's consciousness. Um, but I think it's useful for, for people to talk about the ways that their editors are involved in terms of having, a vision for it or a way to push you. Cause Dan really challenged me. And I think I know it's a better book. I feel so much more confident about the book and I feel like it came together in a way that it hadn't come together before. Well, I think it's, you know, both a testament to his belief in you, you know, even if he didn't feel like the structure was totally there yet, but also I think it is really important to talk about the fact that, you know, when you think of a writer, you might think of someone like with a pencil, like alone in their dark room, maybe drinking too much, but that it, you know, writing is a team sport in a lot of ways. Like you've mentioned several times that you had readers that reacted in certain ways and readers that helped you even besides your editor and that, you know, we can only maybe do so much within the boundaries of our own heads. And then we need space and other perspectives. Definitely. I, you know, I teach, when I teach workshop, I have students talk about the deeper subject of a manuscript before we do the praise section of the workshop. And the deeper subject is kind of just a fancier word for theme because theme seems to like seventh grade English class. Um, but the deeper subject being what, not what happens in the book, but what it's about. And I think that's useful for other readers to tell the writer that because one, I think the writer should not have the deeper subject too close to the forefront of their brain while they're working because it can become too leading, too didactic. Um, but having your your readers tell you what the book is about, I think can help you one, know if you're on the right track or not and help you understand what meaning is getting made so that you know what choices to make in revision. So I just came back from a week, week of teaching at the community of writers and just hearing other people, like everyone's feedback was always so smart on a writer's manuscript and just seeing how it kind of expanded the writer's understanding of their own work, just confirmed that you cannot really do this alone because you don't, you're, you're inside the world. So you really have your gaze is very specific. It's very up close inside the world. So I do rely on a lot of readers and my agent and my editor to sort of tell me, this is what you've made. Let's make it better or whatever. You know, it's, it's been really important to me to have those relationships. So I think what you're saying about the deeper subject of the book and like, you don't want to write too much to it, like in a conscious 
level because it does become too didactic. And I think when you read certain novels that have like, you can tell the writer has an agenda, then it's, it doesn't have that spark or that magic. So I'm curious for you, when you went from, you know, the magical baby to the time travel, as in your process of writing and discovery, what was like a really exciting discovery along the way or what changed for you in terms of how you thought about this? Like I said, I think the writer is probably the most stupid person about the book, especially earlier on. Um, but when people, when, when, when I finished the book, you know, when I had done all these revisions and really worked it and it was finished, Dan was like, you wrote a book about intergenerational trauma. And I was like, I did. <laughs> It seems so like, of course I did. These are characters who are generation to generation bringing passing pain along and doing things the wrong way because of something they're carrying from before, obviously. Um, as I was writing, I would be surprised by the way that things echoed in a way that I didn't intend, which seems so stupid because it's so obvious. But, you know, we have we have a character like Cherry who was raised on this cult commune thing her own mother left her when she was a few days old so she doesn't remember her own mother and then she herself leaves um and i did not really intend for that to be obviously an echo of behavior but it is and it happens in all these smaller ways throughout the book there's these kind of like reverberations of actions that i didn't necessarily intend for um but obviously the book gets more and more intelligent the more you work on it. And I don't want to get mystical, but I do think these, your, your subconscious is working with these ideas, these materials, and things are going to echo and be drawn up again and again. Um, so that was a fun surprise for me to have happened. I think there's also really beautiful ways about how these later generations heal about the way that they can see those mistakes and maybe they're making their own, but how they can sort of make peace with some of their trauma, how they can use therapy or other tools to get over it and how they use the wisdom for good instead of for bad. Like Ursa could never get over it. Yeah. Ursa, she, one of the reasons why she's a villain is that she doesn't learn anything. You know, she, she has some revelations near the end of the book and then she doesn't use them to change at all. She does not change. And that's, she remains the antagonist, but we have Opal, her granddaughter has the same gift who uses, who first uses it to connect really to understand what she couldn't understand as a time as a child. Um, and I think that's really beautiful. Um, and her father and her mother later in the book are both trying so hard to get past these terrible things that happened to them. And they may not do everything right. And her, you know, her father tries to keep all this information from Opal, but his intentions are good. And he is trying to feel pain through his body, um, which is, you know, noble considering he was raised without anybody really caring for him. Um, and so I did want to explore that, although I didn't set out thinking, let me write about the modalities of healing for each generation. I, that would be a horrible book. Um, but Along the way, I kind of figured out, oh, okay, we're seeing how these different people are grappling with what's happened to them. Did it make you look at time differently? I think I've exorcised some of that desire to be in the past. Um, just like writing California, kind of, I probably have to write a new post-apocalyptic book. <laughs> but that one, for a long time, I got out a lot of my anxiety about the end of the world. And this one too, writing about the passage of time like that has made me feel like I was, well, I kind of had to do it to write the book. I had, you know, I gave Opal, the granddaughter, my own birthday. I put her on my street that I grew up in. I wrote about Melrose and her, as she remembers it, I basically put her in my high, public high school. So I had to do my own kind of deep memory excavation to write a lot of the book. And so in some ways, it kind of fulfilled that desire in me for at least the time being. One thing that struck me partly from reading the acknowledgements of the book um, and us talking a little bit about your interest in your mom's life before you. And since motherhood is so prominent in here and we 
know that you had a good mother, but there's so much motherhood. But I also think that this book was greatly influenced by your father, I think, Mm -hmm. because there's this whole other element for Ray when he's in adulthood and he's in LA that he gets into this therapeutic modality. He gets this machine. It's the, it's an accumulator or go. My dad says orgone, but now I actually don't know if that's the correct pronunciation. I've realized orgone accumulator. Wilhelm Reich is the therapist. My dad, the book is dedicated to him. He has a vanity license plate that reads orgone. Um, I always knew that I wanted to write about this. It's been part of my upbringing and I think it's really weird and interesting. Um, Wilhelm Reich is a analyst who was like an acolyte of Freud, but then kind of left Freud because they had a difference in opinion. Um, Freud was very much about, you know, your mother and your father are why you're like you, how you are today. And Reich was much more about like, that's important, but you have to also think about the larger, your larger socioeconomic world and those as like systems that affect you and your understanding of your own sexuality, of your own feelings. Um, He, in some ways he's, he was groundbreaking at the time, but a lot of his ideas are kind of normal today. Um, He's kind of the father of somatic therapy. So thinking about how the body holds on to pain and energy and like letting some of that out as a way to feel release rather than just talking about everything, you know, do something like screaming (laughs) that will make you feel better because you're in your body feeling things. Um, So that stuff I think is really useful. Um, By the end of his life, end of his life, he became kind of a kook. He had built this machine called the Orgone Accumulator, which Ray in the novel, he builds one and you're supposed to sit inside of it and feel the bions, which are what he called energy kind of moving in and out of your body. Um, He also built a cloud buster, um, like the Kate Bush song that was supposed to like make rain come. And at the FBI raided his papers, he died in prison. It was just a bad ending for a doctor who had a lot of really interesting ideas mid-career, I would say. Um, My father, he's from New Jersey. He was like a blue collar kid turned hippie who came to LA to, you know, live a California life. And he always has been into kind of alternative theories like Timothy Leary. We would always go to the like spiritual LA bookstore now defunct called Bodhi Tree and he'd buy all kinds of nutty books. He has his own personal astrologer. Um, And he's been into Reikian therapy since I was a kid. And so I was the kind of child whose parent you know, if I had something wrong, I would be told to like go scream into a pillow or maybe I just needed to poop. And that was why I wasn't, I was depressed or he would point out people and say, oh, they have an energy block in their eyes and that's why they're looking that way. Or he would say all kinds of nutty things. And I grew up thinking it was pretty normal. And then I grew up, I realized later that that's not exactly how everybody is raised. Um, So I always wanted to write a character who had that as a worldview of this is how I heal myself through, you know, these physical activities that would remind me I have a body. Um, And so that's how I came up with Ray's therapeutic obsession. Do you use any of the tools or teachings that your dad maybe gave you in your body that you apply to your writing practice? It's a good question. Not directly. Um, There's a scene of Ray where he goes to his doctor, he calls him doc. And I actually went once to a therapy appointment in my twenties and did some of those things. I don't typically do them. If I'm feeling very anxious, I might look around a room um, and point everything out and use my eyes in the way that Ray does in the book. But that's pretty similar to any kind of anxiety exercise, like pick out four things in the room that are red, pick out three sounds you're hearing, all those things to ground you. Um, As far as writing, I don't think so, but I would say my dad, you know, he was really very much into the power of positive thinking and getting to be his child. I don't, I don't feel held back. You know, I don't, I don't have to imagine my parents are dead to write because they are fully accepting of who I am. And I think that kind of free household has made me a better writer in that I'll just try anything. And I think sometimes people point out in my books that the characters are very 
complicated and that in my nonfiction too, that it's very honest. And I don't really even mean to do that. I think I was just raised in a way to be very honest and in my body and kind of free. And so I think that has given me some, a feeling of being liberated as an artist, which is nice. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Can you read a passage from an author that influences you as a writer? Sure. So I decided it would be so fun to read um, a poem so that I could just have it be one thing. Um, I'm going to read from Sharon Old's book, Odes. Um, I was going to read Ode to My Hymen, which is the first ode in the book. Ode to the Hymen by Sharon Olds. I don't know when you came into being inside me when I was inside my mother, maybe when the involuntary muscles were setting like rose jello. I love to think of you then, so whole, so impervious, you and the clitoris as safe as the lives in which you were housed. They would have had to kill both my mother and me to get at either of you. I love her at this moment as the big fortress around me, the matron head around the sweet meat of my maiden head. I don't know who invented you to keep a girl's inwards clean and well coveted. Dear wall, dear gate, dear style, dear Dutch door, not a cat flap, nor a swinging door, but a one-time pinata. How many places in the body were made to be destroyed once? You were very sturdy, weren't you? You took your job seriously. I'd never felt such pain. You were the hourglass lady, the magician saws in two. I was proud of you turning to a cupful of the bright arterial ingredient. And how lucky we were, you and I, that we got to choose when and with whom and where and why plush pin cushion somehow related to statues that wept. It happened on the rug of a borrowed living room, but I felt as if we were in Diana's woods, he and I and you together, or as if we were where the magma from the core of the earth burst up through the floor of the sea. Thank you for your life and death. Thank you for your flower girl walk before me, throwing down your scarlet petals. It would be years before I married, years before I carried within me a tiny baby hymen near the eggs with other teensy hymens within them. But you unscrolled the carpet, leading me into the animal life of a woman. You were a sort of blood mother to me. First, you held me close for 18 years, and then you let me go. Isn't it great? Oh, my God. It's so visceral. Yeah, she I love these. I haven't read a lot of journals, but I actually have this book often by my bed and I'll read different ones. And some of them are so funny. Like she has like an ode to the penis. That's really great. Um, and not all of them are about like genitals <laughs> and sex. Um, but I love her descriptions of the body and the way the metaphors are so playful and intense at the same time. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Sure. I thought I would read just a short passage to show. So when you have a book, this book starts in, it officially starts in like 1938, but it's really 1950s to the year 2000. Um, and when you have that much time passing, you do want to have these sections that compress a lot of time. And then, you know, where do you compress the time and where do you slow down to dramatize and have these, you know, big open moments. Um, and I just wanted to read a part where I have the time compression because it wasn't easy. And sometimes I like how it turned out. Um, I'm going to read from on page 35 to 36 of the book, Ursa, she's pregnant, her, she's moved into the house. She has her first acolyte, um, Mary, and Mary is learning how to grow the marijuana, which will be one of their ways that they make money. And she, Ursa calls um, time traveling transporting. From her perch in the turret, Ursa oversaw developments on the property below. Mary turned out to be a whiz at marijuana cultivation. After Lee gave her a final tutorial, Mary bedded him, becoming pregnant, unbeknownst to Lee, who would never meet his child, let alone know he had fathered one. 
Not long after that affair, the first contraction squeezed Ursa's womb, a signal either from or for the baby that his arrival was imminent. Breach, the midwife said, as Ursa squatted on a red towel in the downstairs parlor, her body stretched stem to stern. She was a rubber band about to snap. Forty hours after the first contraction, Ray emerged bottom first. His mother imagined him scratching her insides with his fingernails on his reluctant exit. Ray, the love of Ursa's life. Here he is, squawking, pink, hair sopping with amniotic fluid. Ursa thinks he is the most beautiful baby to have ever been born. Those first tender weeks of Ray's life were heavenly in a way Ursa didn't expect. His eyes, gray and glossy as marbles, umbilical nub drawing to stone at his navel, the godly seam of his testes, Ursa's breasts smarting with milk. She knew that one day she would transport back to these weeks, and she wished she didn't have to wait, for already Ray looked different than he had the day before. Perhaps, she thought, the true purpose of her gift was to return to a younger version of her child. Any mother would do it if she could, wouldn't she? Do you want to share more about why you chose that? Sure. I mean, it's interesting to read it after I'd read the Sharon Olds because I get to, you know, I may, it's obvious that I like Sharon Olds and I was influenced like her body stretching like a rubber band. I kind of try to do the same thing that Sharon Olds does. Um, I can hear the omniscience here where I, for a moment, I say, I describe Ursa as Ray's mother. So I'm shifting the perspective there, which I don't even think I did on purpose. Something fun that I did with the narrator too, is that sometimes she speaks in pre the present tense. And that's always a fun rule to break, you know, when you're in workshop or, you know, sometimes tense changes feel accidental. So it's fun to try to make them work where suddenly it's here he is squawking pink. Ursa thinks, you know, we were in the past and suddenly we're in the present. So those were really kind of delightful little experiments that I could fiddle with as I was writing. Where do you write? I write where I am sitting right now. In my office, I have a little downstairs lair um, that my husband, he has an office next to me, we built out. It was just storage. So either right here at a desk in my office, or sometimes I'll write at a cafe with a cappuccino if I need to be. I'm not getting any work done and I need to be witnessed working. I'll go to a public place to do it. What do you do to get away from writing? It's very hard for me to find time to write because I have three kids and I, you know, my youngest is, I have him on Monday. So I really only have four days of writing days a week and then school is out. So it's, you know, to get away from writing, it's, it's more like, how do I get to writing? But I guess I go for a long walk in the Canyon where I live. That's typically if something's going really badly in my writing, I just say, oh, screw this. And I go do that for a while. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My husband, he is the first, my first, I always say he's my first and last and best reader. How have you dealt with rejection? Crying. <laughs> you know, I think there's, you think after, you know, you publish your first book, rejection doesn't happen, but actually I find that rejection is just a part of writing, you know, whether it's a, a pitch I'm getting rejected or a short story or this novel from other editors, there's just so much no. So I just try to feel the feeling, you know, a cold martini doesn't hurt either, but generally I just cry. What is your favorite word? I have a notes on my notes app on my phone. I have new words that I'm interested in. So before I started talking to you, cause I knew that was a question. I have three words that are in there right now. And the three, I seem to like them are sodden, pungent, and austere. I think those are good words. Thank you so much for your time. I'm so appreciative. Oh, thank you. Great questions. Thank you for reading it so closely. I so appreciate it. If you like today's show with Eden Lepucky, author of the novel Time's Mouth, check out my first interview with her on her novel California. We talked about survival at the end of the world, her attraction to futuristic narratives, and the inevitability of violence in a post-apocalyptic world. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 420 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. 
You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Ben Fountain, Jen Shapland, and Etoff Room. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.